0: What is normal psychology, and if it does exist, how the heck could we ever find it? Uh, Join me today on Physically Spiritual as I explore normal psychology. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I have been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I have discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. The origin of the Greek goddess Psyche is a complex narrative full of tragedy and ultimately uh, her becoming a member of the gods on Olympus. Psyche was born to Greek royalty. She had two sisters, but she was the most beautiful, renowned as the most beautiful woman. In the whole world. Her sisters married kings, uh, but she couldn't find a suitor. Everyone would admire Psyche, but no one would marry her. In modern terms, all creeps, but no suitors. Her father in desperation, like all the good Greeks, went to the Oracle of Delphi for answers, and the Greek god Apollo spoke through the Oracle, basically saying, she's doomed. You ought to just go kill her now. So her father took her in funeral clothes to a high mountain for her to meet her end. She jumped off the cliff and the Greek god Zephyrus saved her, one of the gods of wind, and took her to the house of the god Eros, who was the son of the Greek god of love Aphrodite and the god of war Ares. Eros was the Greek god of desire. She was instructed by Eros, that if, he, if she saw him in full light, it would ruin everything. But she eventually betrayed him, walking into his room with a lamp and a knife. His, his mother, Aphrodite, took Psyche and to test her, gave her four trials. The fourth trial was for her to go and get some of Persephone's beauty for Aphrodite. Now, Persephone was the Greek goddess of death the queen of the underworld. She went through the four trials. Uh, She thought that Persephone had given her some of her beauty, but when she opened the box for Aphrodite, it was simply death. So Psyche dies, but her husband Eros, who forgives her, relented, brought her back from from the dead brought her to Mount Olympus and she became the Greek goddess of the soul or the incarnation of the soul. I want to spend a moment reflecting on the relationship between psyche and eros. Like I said before, eros is the Greek god of desire. And the word psyche in Greek could actually be translated as soul, but it's also translated as mind. Soul or mind. So there's this deep connection the story is, is communicating to us between the idea of soul and mind and the idea of desire. And as we start talking about psychology, it's important to understand this. Um, soul or mind and desire are connected. We sometimes, uh, I think, create a, um, an incorrect disconnection between the idea of heart and mind. Heart and mind. Sort of the heart is one thing separate from the mind that's the other thing. But part of uh, kind of the, the classic thought in perennial philosophy that's come into the church from the Greek world is that, that the, the nature of desire or, or our desires come from what we know. That, that everything we encounter causes a, a passion in us, causes an attraction or a repulsion. So the things that we come to know, we either are drawn to them, we desire them, or we're repulsed by them. Our desire is to get away from them. And this is the complex web that goes into us as a human person that often um, that often controls our default reactions to things, our default reactions. Meaning when I'm in the moment and I'm not thinking about what to do, what I do do, or when I feel like I'm out of control, what comes to the surface, maybe if I have some kind of intoxicating substance in me and so my inhibitions are down, how do I behave? You know, that, that day-to-day stuff that I do without actually going through the process of saying, oh, I'm going to do this now in my mind, right? All of this is controlled by this inner complex of attractions and repulsions, these sort of default behaviors in us. But the source of those desires are the way that our mind is formed. And sometimes we think of mind too narrowly, right? We just think of it as like the stuff I've come to understand, like book knowledge stuff. But another part of our mind, of our understanding is the way that we've come in relationship with everything in the world. So we might borrow a term from modern psychology called attachment, right? Attachment is really kind of a sort of knowledge that we come. Attachment is my knowledge of in my experience of the love of the people in my life. So I have my foundational attachments to my mother and my father, right? the way that they've loved me or failed to love me, uh, the way that they've um, connected with me or not connected with me, lays down this foundational attachment or posture I have toward the world. Or a way to think of it is a lens by which I then um, interpret all other relationships or, or a posture that I now have toward the world around me. But then all of my other relationships lay down these attachments which is really a kind of knowledge. It's not a book knowledge, it's a love knowledge. It's a relationship knowledge. And this is the, the way that, that, that my passions, my attractions and repulsions to the world around me are coming out of this kind of relational knowledge that I have, right? So if, if I persist and struggle with some kind of sin or some kind of bad habit, that, that default behavior is coming out of this, this relational posture I have toward the world oftentimes. Before I go further, I want to invite you to consider becoming a patron of Physically Spiritual. Go to physicallyspiritual.com to join our patron community. A monthly gift of of any amount helps make this possible, Um, covering the expenses to Awaken Catholic for the production of the show. So go to physicallyspiritual.com to become a patron of the show. There's different uh, perks you get at each giving level. Second, uh, if you want to get access to those perks, the best way to do it is on the Awaken app. Go to the awakenapp.io. On the app, you get access to all the shows, a great uh, social network community that's there, and many other free resources, along with access to all your premium resources if you're a member of the Awaken Nation or a patron of one of the shows here in Awaken Catholic. And finally, if you want to find anything I'm doing, go to becominggift.com. All right, back to the regular programming. So, this idea of psyche, the, the soul or the mind, uh, in classic thought, were really synonymous. They were synonymous. But in, in our contemporary context, we often break them apart. Right? You'll hear people say things like, this is holistic or integrative. It's body, mind, and soul. But in the Greek language, this would be like saying, it's soma psyche and psyche. you <laughs> would be literally saying the same word twice. Mind and soul were synonyms. They were two ways of, of naming the same thing. Uh, some of this, I think, misunderstanding comes from the beginning of the field of psychology. Like the thought of Sigmund Freud, when being translated into English, whenever the word that would—he's um, he's writing in German, but whatever the word psyche, um, the equivalent word in German, is translated into English, in the early editions, it was always translated as mind and never translated as soul, often, I think, times leading to a misunderstanding of exactly what he was trying to say or a loss of some of the nuance of his thought. But it's also true that much of early psychology tried to explain religion through natural causes. I mean, by by looking at the understanding of the human heart and mind, by looking at um, the development of the human person over the ages, they try to explain religion as sort of just a a response to our our natural desires and thoughts, meaning that God doesn't actually exist. God isn't a person, God isn't a thing, but God is just something that we've created out of the need of the human heart and mind, uh, so it just has sort of a psychological explanation. Um, so then the, the practice of psychology or psychotherapy, in some of its early forms, was how can we now help people get better without reference to God? Right now, that, that people don't have spirituality and don't have religion to be there to answer their questions and to help them change and become the people they want to be. How now can we help people? And this was part of the impetus of the of the early um, development of psychotherapy and counseling. Now, this isn't a um, and across the board. I don't want. It's an oversimplification, and it's not an across the board sort of thing because some of the, the earliest thinkers in psychology and psychotherapy um were people of faith and did believe in God in the soul. Um, but this foundation is there to some extent, that the early form um, kind of had this this way of approaching the human person without reference to religion or God. So in the church, traditionally what we had were spiritual directors, right? So you'd have a, a confessor or a spiritual director that you would go to and talk about your life, and they would help you, grow spiritually, help you grow morally, help you learn how to pray, and and help you become the person that God was calling you to be. Um, So in our culture, often one of the things I think that happened was this idea of psychology or counseling replaced what classically was the place of spiritual direction. And and I think there's probably a place for both. I'm not saying it's an either-or proposition. But the contemporary practice of psychology I think, has some flaws. So our common understanding of psychology, if you go to like a psychology 101 class in college, really what the focus of the course will probably be is what's called abnormal psychology. Abnormal psychology, or what's all the ways that people uh, are broken or or different or not how they should be. And so the modern uh, practice of psychology or psychiatry has broken all the different sort of abnormal psychologies into different diagnoses or given them names. And these are listed in what's called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So each one of these different categories of abnormal psychology are categorized in this document. And then this document and the codes in it are then used to do things like bill insurance. You know, so if you go to a counselor, um, even if, you don't have mental illness, maybe you just are struggling emotionally in some way, or or you have a re, something going on in a relationship, in order for that counselor to bill your insurance, they have to assign um, you a code from the DSM in order for it to be something that is reimbursable by the insurance program. So, and this is across the board of whether it's a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor, any kind of mental health that's going to be reimbursed through insurance is needs some kind of a uh, a code from this manual to be considered reimbursable you know as a result there are actually some contemporary mental health professionals who choose not to use the insurance model recognizing that one not everybody's situation fits a diagnosis and then two the the constraints of the insurance model end up Um, end up imposing difficulties on the process that they don't want to face. But on the other hand, then, the full cost of the the therapy goes on the patient having to pay out of pocket. I think one of the the biggest difficulties with this this model is it doesn't always spend a lot of time asking the question, what is normal psychology? What's normal? If you go to that Psych 101 class, you might leave the class without a lot of clarity as to what should you be like. What you're going to have is a whole list of things that you shouldn't be like, and it's common for psychology students uh, to start self-diagnosing, right? You leave your course thinking, I probably have about three or four of those things um, (laughs) to worry about. Um, But the course doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about what's normal. Oftentimes, the way that the, the field asks what's normal is based on population-based studies. meaning you go out and do surveys. You go out and look at people and you ask the question, what's typical, right? What's the average person like? Or what are people that seemingly function pretty well like? Other times, the way they perform the research is by looking at the human body and trying to make connections between um, different um, abnormalities, maybe the certain size of parts of the brain, uh, different damage to the body, um, other issues that arise and can be distinguished physically. And then trying to as- asso- the, associate these um, physical cues with different psychological conditions that are defined um, by the DSM. I think the issue with both of these approaches is, though, that in light of the Christian understanding of original sin, right, that that we all have this kind of human condition that isn't in God's original plan, that what's typical isn't necessarily what's normal, right? What's typical isn't necessarily what's good, what's healthy, how we should be. I think part of this is is that a misunderstanding of the idea of original sin has led many people to just jettison the idea, to disregard it, right? Oftentimes what we do is we we um we associate sin with bad, meaning if if I sin, that means I am a bad person. And that's not at all what the, the church is saying or or what the scripture is saying. It's saying that that sin ultimately destroys human nature. So God proclaims from the very beginning that we are very good. And and that's in God's all-powerful creation of us, right? He's an omnipotent being creating us. And then in his omniscience, his all-knowing will, seeing his creation and proclaiming it so. So our limited finite will and understanding of ourselves, we can never make ourselves bad. Our goodness, the fact that God loves us, um, persists regardless of what we do. We are very good and we can rest in that. You know, the quote from the previous episode from John Paul II that I said a couple times Uh, that he said in World Youth Day in Toronto in 2002, we are not the sum of our weaknesses and failures. We are the sum of the Father's love for us. But just because sin doesn't make us bad doesn't mean that sin isn't bad. (laughs) Meaning sin is bad, not because it makes us bad, but because it harms us. It destroys us. It's devastating for human nature. And when Adam and Eve sin, we see this. They hide from God, from one another. Uh, their, their children murder each other. <laughs> like things get really bad really quick in the story. And what it's trying to teach us is that it has this effect of, of warping us. Right? The scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. So if we just do a population based study and ask the question what's normal? We're always going to come up with an answer that's a little bit off the mark because we're taking a survey of people that sin, that damage themselves, uh, that bodies aren't the way that they should be, that minds aren't the way they should be. Uh, So we'll never quite get to the bottom of answering that question, what's normal psychology? To get deeper into the question, I think we can turn uh, once again to the scripture and there's a beautiful line um, as Pontius Pilate is interrogating Jesus. Right, this is a, it's a great conversation in the scripture between Pilate and Jesus. You know, Pilate at one point poses the question, "What is truth?" Right? Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." And this is what we're getting at. What's the truth? But when Pilate brings Jesus out after the interrogation, he says, "Behold the man." In Latin, the phrase is "Ecce Homo." Behold the man. And, and the idea is that as a result of the torture that Jesus has already gone through, I think Pilate is trying to present him to the crowd being like, have we done enough to punish this guy already? Right? I don't want to be responsible for his death too. Um, but I think it also rings into our hearts and into our minds. right? We're encouraged to behold the man. And later in the scripture, Jesus is described as the new Adam, and Mary is described as the new Eve. The new Adam and new Eve, meaning humanity before sin or humanity without sin. Adam and Eve were our first, the first people created without sin, and they sinned. Jesus and Mary are the second people created without sin, and they don't. So we enter into Jesus' mind, into his heart, into his body, to discover what normal psychology is, what God's original plan was. When when Mary is standing at the foot of the cross uh, with the Apostle John, uh, there's a question at hand. With Jesus gone, Joseph is already dead, um, who will care for Mary? Because part of the Jewish culture was that that a, a woman was in the home of their father until they were with their husband. Then they were in their husband's home, and they provided for them. And then if he passed away, they were in their husband's siblings' home or one of their children's home to care for them. So now that Jesus is going, whom would care for Mary? And in the conversation, she turns to John and says, uh, he turns to Mary and says, woman, behold your son. And turns to John and says, um, behold your mother. Right? Behold your mother. It's a beautiful line, but I think it's also connected with behold the man. Right. We're invited to also look at Mary and look at the beloved disciple. Mary as a woman who never sinned, and then John as a sinner who has been redeemed. You know, John throughout his gospel, like I talked about extensively in the last episode, refers to himself as the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple. And it's not because John was the only disciple that was loved, it, I think it's because John is the disciple that knew he was loved the most, knew that he was loved the most. As Christians, uh, we're invited to call God Father. We're invited to call God Father. And as, as uh, Catholics, we consider Mary to be our mother. When Jesus is questioned about his teaching, um, he says, You know, how could we claw, crawl back into our mother's womb and be born again? And he says, you're, you're born again of water in the spirit. He's referring to baptism here, that as Christians, our, our baptism is the inauguration of our new life in the spirit, and also the moment where we're becoming adopted children of God and of Mary. So as Christians, we enter into this new primary relationship. Jesus as our, uh, God as our Father, Jesus as our Father, Mary in the church also as our mother. Uh, going back to the beginning of the episode then, we we began talking about this idea of attachment, right? this kind of relational knowledge that our bodies and minds uh, gather up that sets our default posture to the world. Uh, in light of this, I think God's inviting us into a new attachment, into a new relationship, into a new relational posture toward the world around us. There's a redemption that isn't just a collection of ideas, but it's an experience of love. It's becoming beloved children of God, right? And and I think this ultimately is what normal psychology is. It's redeemed psychology. It's psychology at the foundation is on a perfect love. The imperfect love of parents, regardless of how good they are, how wonderful they are, always leave us, to some extent, wounded. And this is one of the foundations of our ongoing struggles and sin in our life. Although our will is always at play too, but our will is our rational appetite, meaning based on our our knowledge and experiences, the things that we're attracted to, right? What, What sets us free is the knowledge of things beyond the physical world, right? So we come to knowledge of universal ideas like justice and goodness, and also come into a knowledge of God, into a relationship with God. So we're not just reacting on instinct, right? All this good stuff that I could do and I'm attracted to, but now I'm also making choices because I'm attracted to the idea of justice, right? And justice isn't determined specifically by the attractive things that are presented to me the world around. I have to actually decide what is just, right? Justice demands choice. So now in the midst of all the things I'm attracted to, with my knowledge of justice, I now can elect options in the midst of all the possibilities that are before me. Animals, on the other hand, they have a complex internal life where they experience things, they're attracted to them, and they, they choose in their own way, but they're not free because they're not in contact with anything that transcends the physical world, neither the universal concept nor God himself. Uh, so we're free in this way. Uh, and one of the things that sets us free is God. God sets us free. Uh, it's interesting when John Paul II in his Theology of the Body um, enters into it, he, he begins by exploring Adam and Eve before the fall. Right. So he asks the question, what was it like in the beginning for them? And he draws out from lines in the scripture kind of what Adam and Eve's heart was was like before they sinned, right? The scripture says that they were naked, yet they felt no shame. They were naked, yet they felt no shame. And they had this original solitude or intimacy with God or a way that they were different than the rest of creation. They had this original unity. Adam proclaims, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. They had this relationship of intimacy and closeness where nothing was between the, spouse, the spouses, Adam and Eve. Then they had this original innocence. They were naked, yet they felt no shame. They had no reason not to trust the purity of the other's gaze, right? the purity of the other's heart, the other person's intentions toward them. They were living in this place of of perfect attachment, (laughs) having experienced the love of God and the love of one another in a way that made them perfectly secure. So this is what we are being invited in as Christians. Certainly, um, contemporary psychology has an important place to play if people struggling with mental illness, people struggling with um, different neuroses, different uh, emotional troubles, struggling with depression, anxiety, relationship troubles. The, the idea of this episode isn't to dismiss the practice of, of uh, contemporary um, mental health, um, but it's to recognize that there are limits to it. Um, but when we, we bring it into context with the, the lens of our faith, it brings light on where it can be applied helpfully. And also, I think sometimes when we also need to, um, to enter into it spiritually, too. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awaken Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.